Welcome to the Business Chef Podcast, where we learn from the best about the business side of the food service industry. Do you make food? Then let us help you make money doing it. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook, or email us info at businesschef.org. Welcome to the Business Chef Podcast. I'm your host, Chef Sean Boucher, and we are talking today about equipment, talking about design, talking about my good friend, Greg Gorgoni, uh, who I've known for a little bit of time and works for some equipment companies. So would love to get to know him a little bit, love to get to know his story and what he does when he designs and specs equipment and does all those fun things for those up-and-coming concepts. Okay, Gregimus, go ahead and lay it on us. How'd you get started in this business, and where are you today? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I graduated from high school at, uh, in Cincinnati, Moeller High School, and um, when I was going to college for the first year, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't see myself as a sales and marketing type and, um, you know, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, uh, I took a job at a local restaurant just to pick up some extra cash. And, um, I had put applications all around town and, um, one late afternoon, I got a phone call from the chef at one of the better restaurants in town. And, uh, I guess I'd put an application in there and, and he goes, um, can you come in tonight and do pots and pans? And I'm like, sure. Uh, what do I need to wear? I mean, literally I asked him, okay, you know, what do I need to wear? He says, you know, sneakers, jeans, and a t-shirt. I said, all right. And I mean, literally, uh, 45 minutes later, I'm walking in the restaurant and, uh, met this guy, never met him before, never been in the back of the house before. Um, <clears throat> And I go in and uh, they set me up and told me what to do. And and uh, I sat there all night just cranking out pots and pans. And of course, uh, we all know what happens with that. Your hands are just decimated. But I went back the following night and, you know, every night after that. And I just fell in love with it. I mean, all the activity and all the things going on. And um, it was a, a busy restaurant. And I, I just kind of just fell for it. And uh uh, the next thing I knew, I'm doing dishes, and then uh, the sous chef who was there, a guy named Jonathan, very, very nice guy, uh, and it turned out he was from Cincinnati, and he started asking me to help him out on, on some things, and so I started doing some, you know, basic prep. Uh, I'm pretty sure the first thing I, I was asked to do is clean some romaine lettuce, so he sets me up at the station, and uh I'll never forget, there's a cutting board there, and there's, there's like a 12-inch French knife there, and then a case of, of romaine, and he tells me I need to cut it and wash it and dry it. And so I look at this 12-inch French knife, and I just kind of looked at him, I go, well, are you going to show me how to use this thing? Because I said, I had no clue. So to his credit, um, he uh, he actually took a few minutes and showed me what to do with it and and, and how, to, how to do it, and got me going, and I just started doing it. And then... So in between uh, dishes, and I had graduated from dishes from pots and pans. So in between doing dishes and when things weren't busy, I started prepping. 
And then um, I started doing more and more and more. And pretty soon I was just enamored with it. I just thought it was just the greatest thing. So I said, uh, so how do you learn about this? You know, um, I had never heard of culinary school or anything like that. And he says, and so he described culinary school and I go, well, tell me about the schools. And so at that time, I mean, we're talking about uh, early 80s at this point. And uh, he said, you know, there's a culinary Institute of America and there's Johnson and Wales. And so um, I reached out and did some research on both schools, got some information. And um, at the time, I was living in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, or the University of Massachusetts. And so both both places were relatively close to where I, where I was you know, living uh, in Amherst. And um, turned out at the time, CIA had a, uh, I think it was a six or eight month waiting list to get in. And so um, I took a drive down to Providence and uh, went to a, like an orientation or, or, you know, some kind of, you know, sales thing. And I went through it and boom, next thing you know, uh, like literally two weeks later, I started uh, in the, during the third trimester of that year, uh, started in culinary school. And so um, I went straight through the summer and, um, and just, you know, from there, uh, just was in food and beverage. And, uh, when I, by the time I graduated, I realized I didn't want to be a chef per se. Uh, I knew I wanted to be in the industry. And when I graduated, I went to go work at a resort in food and beverage management. And so, um, I went to this resort, Sun Valley ski resort in Ketchum, Idaho. And I was the, uh, the restaurant manager, um, at the trail Creek cabin, which was about a mile North of resort. People used to come in on uh, horse drawn sleighs. So I did that during the winter season. And then uh, during the summer season, I was the assistant banquet manager. And uh, we had pretty busy, you know, 10 or 12 week uh, summer catering schedule between stuff at the lodge and, you know, between stuff that was, uh, they had skating, you know, every, I think it was every Saturday night, they had skating. We did banquets every Sunday, you know, Sunday brunch. And so um, it was a pretty busy year. And then from there, I just went on to more hotel work, and um, and I just stuck with. It. I just loved it, and I, I liked I liked the overall food and beverage. Um, it wasn't just about the kitchen; it was just everything. And then um, I eventually ended up in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, I went to the, the Johnson and Wales campus that was there. Uh, met a guy who was the head of culinary, and uh, I was just going there to network. And next thing you know, he calls me up and offers me a job. And um, I go, you know, I have not worked professionally in a kitchen. Um, you know, I've, I've been in management. And he says, okay, this is all intro stuff. And so um, the next thing you know, I spent three years as a chef instructor, and I had a blast. Um, I did, uh, you know, I had intro classes. I had production. I did garmanger. Um, I taught a, an associate's degree level food and beverage management class. Uh, I got very involved with school and in Charleston had a blast and so really had a nice time. I really enjoyed it. I've always stayed attached to Johnson and Wales one way or the other been involved with them. And so, man, so that's a mouthful. You go from, you go from basically getting into this career or this job by accident, essentially. I mean, you wanted a job, you needed a job. Somebody just happened to call you. So now you get into the situation where you're washing pots and pans and now you're prepping. And the next thing you know, 
you're teaching at Johnson and Wales. I mean, I guess I skipped a few steps there, but the point is, is that you just never really know where this industry is going to take you or, or in what way it's going to take you. Um, and, and really what you're going to be interested in. It takes experience. It takes a lot of time to kind of figure that out. So where you're at right now is much different than, than chef instructing. It's much different than prepping. So tell me how you got into the, the design side of things, the, the planning and, and kind of that. Well, I, I always like um, the concept side and the design and planning side. And so um, I ended up with, with a private group down in Florida. We were doing some hotels. And then pretty soon I was actually working on the planning and design side of things and helping with food, specifically food service planning and design, because that was kind of, you know, my knowledge base. And so I had the great opportunity of working uh, uh, with several food service consultants. And uh, one one I would mention right away is John Raymond Schneider um, out of Michigan, JRA, uh, food service design. And... uh, John, John was, you know, a bit older than me and, uh, he was very much a mentor to me. And, um, I ended up doing about a half a dozen projects with him, uh, throughout the years on different, different things. And he was so smart and he was kind of more of an engineer type than a culinary type. But, uh, but that was good for me because I had to learn the nuts and bolts. And I mean, I mean, I was, I was the owner's rep. And so, I mean, he basically worked for me, but you know, sometimes I felt like I was working for him, you know, which, which was fine. Um, matter of fact, that's when I went to my first NAFM show in Dallas. I mean, this is like 20 years ago. And uh, John hosted me and, you know, introduced me to 50 million people at, at NAFM down in Dallas. For those of you who aren't familiar with NAFM, NAFM is North American Food Equipment Manufacturers. This is a huge show, probably one of my favorites. It's every other year. And uh, it's definitely a place to meet people. So it's pretty neat. So that's kind of how I got the bug for planning and design was just being an owner's rep and having different architects and food service consultants working for, for me and then learning from them and just realize I really enjoy this. It's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, so you get the bug. You know that's kind of what you want to do. So what do you do specifically? Like, what's a day like for you? I don't have anything called an average day, but uh, basically, um, you know, what I do is I'm a culinary design consultant. Real simple, and it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, but um, the the name of the company I represent is called DRS Food Service Design, and what it is is uh, it's a division of a large equipment dealer called Dykes Food Service Solutions based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And so I work out of our contract office, which is in uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, right by Franklin, Tennessee, and uh, in Nashville. And so what I do is I work on uh, business development, um, looking for business and drumming up things, and then I do planning design of food service operations, and then uh, most of my project ends up being in an equipment package as well, and I end up project managing that. So a lot of times I'll take a project from initial contact with a client all the way through grand opening services and, and get them open. So um, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of an interesting uh, business model that's been successful. And most of my work is healthcare 
food service specific. So uh, those that know about or understand healthcare uh, food service kind of appreciate the fact that they need some handholding and need help and, um, and they need someone with my kind of background to help them with that because they don't, they don't often have a, an expert F and B or an executive chef on their payroll. And so a lot of times initially I kind of wear that hat for them to help guide them through the process. Um, and so, which, which is a double-edged sword sometimes, but, um, you know, I try to very much put myself in their position to understand what they're trying to do and what their labor pool is like and, and what they're able to take on. Um, so hopefully what I do is I go in and I have a realistic uh, understanding of, of the skill sets and, and put a process in and give them equipment and layouts and suggestions on menus with things, with convenience items that can um, enhance it without going to say a Stouffer's lasagna, but using convenience products to show them to build how to, how to build a lasagna without having to make every single thing from scratch, as an example. Uh, it's important to understand your the end user and, and, uh, and understand that one day you're gonna walk out the door and the, the goal is that if you were to go back a year later, they're still doing what you showed them to do. And it's, it's either, the, either as good as it was when you left or it's even gotten better. Um, what you don't want is to leave them with a program where you're going to come back a year later and it's just they've gone backwards again because they have no way of, of you know, handling those expectations. Oh, my goodness. It is so crucial that you understand that the people that are going to work on this day to day, this has got to be in their wheelhouse. They've got to they've got to have the skill set. They've got to have the knowledge. They've got to have the desire to be able to do this because realistically, to your point, once you walk out the door, that's kind of it. You're done. And they're the ones that have to have to live with choices or decisions that you've made. So, you, you know, you talk a lot about knowing the skill set and being able to provide solutions based on the people that are going to be doing it every day. Talk a little bit about what the actual process or, or how the industry is set up. How does that equipment, once I, the end user, has ordered it, how does that how does that get to me? How does that get made? Who's involved in the process of getting it from making it to getting it in my back door? Well, you know, in, in today's marketplace, there's there's several layers there. Um, so most most equipment is coming through an equipment dealer. These the manufacturers have contracts with dealers across the United States. And in those contracts, it basically says, we, as manufacturers, we have to sell through the dealers. So the dealers at that point can do one of several things. They can create like a commodity type uh, sales office or online experience where you can just go online. Let's take Big Tray. I mean, Big Tray was like the people that kind of kick this off where you could go online and buy something. So, you know, um, you need a reach and refrigerator, you go on a big tray and you order one. Well, it's the, the problem with that model. And, and a lot of people will tell you this, uh, I'm talking about my clients. They've been in experiences where they get the wrong thing or it's the wrong spec and they really didn't know what they wanted. And, and they ended up with something they, they really didn't need or was a wrong spec. 
Whereas when you talk to someone like me or, or a responsible dealer, they're going to pick the brains of their customers and understand what it is they're doing with that piece of equipment and sell them the right piece of equipment and then stand behind it. When you get into these commodity buys online and things like that, you know, the stuff you'll order online, put it on, you know, PayPal or, or a credit card or whatever, and then it shows up a week or two later, shows up on your loading dock. And so far, there's been no communication with anybody. And, and now if there's a problem with that piece of equipment that's arrived, you have nobody to call except maybe a 1-800 number. And, and so now that relationship is now all based on, you know, some experience with some online service. And so there's really no relationship building there. And so what we try to do is by selling equipment, not only we sell the equipment, but we try to quantify and qualify what it is that they want, establish that relationship and have a long-term relationship. And so, um, so when I, when I spec a piece of equipment, I, I really try to find a piece of equipment that will meet the needs of the operation and the price point. Because uh, a refrigerator is not a refrigerator is not a refrigerator. Um, so as we all know, we can get imports from from the east and we can sell a reach-in for $1,500. But um, if that reach-in goes down or um, it has a dent or, or whatever, there is no factory to go to. You're, you're looking at a reseller from, you know, from Asia in this country. And um, you may or may not get service. You may or may not get parts. Um, if you have that unit, say for a couple of years and you need something, you know, is there a service agency out there that's going to take care of it? So our philosophy is we try to stay with, uh, brands or factories that we feel that will stand behind their product. And so, um, that way we know that there's inventory parts. We know that there's a service network out there that will take care of our customers whether they're in right here in Nashville, Tennessee, or if they're in um, you know Los Angeles, California, or in Boston, Massachusetts, um, uh, and and we do we have clients every all across the country, and so um, you know our our background the country uh, the the company's background is chain restaurant business, and so as such, when we're dealing with either the corporate chain or the franchise holders. Um, oftentimes the same package is being used throughout the country. So it's really important that we establish spec that can be serviced as well in Boston, Massachusetts, as it is in Los Angeles, California. So, um, sometimes, you know, you really got to pay attention to those kind of things. Um, if you're an individual person, uh, an individual restaurant and you're looking for equipment, um, my recommendation would be to find your local food service dealer. And go in and meet with them, you know, look at their inventory, look at the place. Is it clean? Is it neat? Are the people nice? Uh, you know, can you have a relationship with these people? Because at the end of the day, you're going to need to have that relationship for the life of your, your business. And so uh, it's not just a one-shot deal. Uh, equipment goes down all the time. New stuff comes out all the time. And you're going to see stuff you want to want to have. Your concept might change. Uh, there's lots of things. So you need to have a good relationship with your dealer. Okay, so we got to have a relationship with our dealer. That makes a lot of sense because they're they're you. They're the person that you see that you deal with. If you have a problem, if you want to get something new, if you want to know what is new out there, they deal directly with you. 
Now, on the back side of things, there are people that you deal with that end users don't deal with. And talk about some of those, specifically uh, things like buying groups. So basically, there's buying groups for virtually everything these days. Um, in, in the food business, you know, with Cisco or US Foods or whatever, there's companies like Premier and, and uh, Novation and um, uh, Intelair and, you know, other things like that. And, and so basically, you have a contract and you're part of a bigger group that's buying in huge quantities on a national basis and you're getting pricing based on that. Same thing with the equipment dealership. There are, there are uh, national dealership associations, and depending on the size of dealership you are, there's different appropriately sized um, programs or buying groups. So, you know, the biggest dealership in the United States right now is Trimark. Um, last year, in 2016, they went over a billion dollars worth of sales. That sounds impressive, um, but at the same time, a lot of that should become, they're, they're doing a lot of commodity type items. And they're, they're kind of, um, uh, they're, they're kind of becoming the, the, uh, the Walmart of, of that. And, and no disrespect to Trimarks because some Trimarks houses might be great and some might not be as, as good. They've also, they've also uh, segmented their business. So you have a smaller group, that you have an equipment group, and, and they're, they've kind of specialized. So the guy you might be talking today about plates and flatware might not be the guy you have to talk to about equipment. When you get down into, say, you know, a top 50 um, dealer, now you're talking to um, an individual business, uh, individual person who represents everything that they sell. Uh, they're part of a buying group. And so, I mean, ask them, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking, like, how do you do your buying? Are you part of a buying group? Do you pass those savings on to your end users? Um, and so, you know, we, we get um, bid against all the time, even with our own customers. So if we give somebody, let's stick to the refrigerator, we might give them a price on it and, you know, we, and then they might go out and shop it. And so, um, and it's not uncommon for us to go onto Amazon or eBay or some other website and just double check something on some pricing because we know that some of our, let's call them mom and pop places are going to do just that. And so we want to make sure that we're okay. Some of our relationships and some of the buying groups that we're in, we know that we are guaranteed to have a lower price than any of these commodity prices. So if we see something out in the marketplace that is lower than the price that we're buying it for, we call the manufacturer and we get that sorted out because um, that's our, you know, that's our competitive advantage on some of these relationships that we have. And so if we see something that is the exact same spec that's for less money, then we know somebody's out there doing is doing something dishonest or they're not, or someone's not keeping an eye on the ball. And so we make sure. Um, that, you know, we check things and we have people in our, our office in Huntsville that do that. But, um, there, there are some manufacturers today that, that have taken it a step further and they basically have minimum pricing now. And so, um, they want to make sure that the, that the playing field stays as level as possible. And these commodity players aren't undercutting the dealer network 
and and doing things you know that they really shouldn't be doing based on contracts that are in place. So um, there, like I said, there's several co companies. I'm not going to name them, but have minimums. And if you see something that's below that price, you know they go after that that seller and 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 handle it one way or the other. Very very interesting, and that's why I asked the question because you know being an end user, there's a lot of things that you just talked about that I wouldn't know about regularly. I mean, it's, these are things that we talk to industry experts such as yourself about, because obviously if we don't know about these types of things, uh, that can affect our, our purchasing decisions. When it comes to equipment, what type of equipment do you really say you got to go high in there? Or in other words, like, you know, you can go a little cheaper when it comes to this type of equipment, but when it comes to this type of equipment, man, you've really got to, you've really got to bite the bullet and pay the money up front because it's going to save you a lot of money in the long term. You know, I, I think there, there are certain pieces of equipment, uh, let's put it this way, anything with refrigeration or anything with water going through it. You better make sure you have decent quality of stuff. I mean, those are the two pieces of equipment that that have the most likelihood of having a problem as time goes on. And so, if you're if you're going to go out, let's just say a combi oven. There's a lot of players out there in the combi combi um, category these days, and there's a lot of great combis. And and honestly, there's a lot of great combi manufacturers today. So um, you can feel a little bit better than you were even just 10 years ago in the combi market. But um, there are some real cheap ones out there and there are some imports out there. And some of them are, you, you know, I'm, we would say, you know, you might not want to go that direction because in five years, this thing is probably going to be dead as a dog um, or you're just going to have problem after problem. Um, and there's other imports, you know, let's take a rationale, for example. Rationale is smart enough and big enough to know that they had to step up their game and they've done that and they have a great combi now. Um, and so they have the parts and supplies and the, and the um, service network out there to take care of a rationale in virtually just any market. So you can feel pretty good about it. You also know that you're going you're gonna to pay for that. Um, you know, a lot of times we try to stick with what we, what, you know, we'll tell people uh, American made. Um, and it's, it's, you know, a little bit is, is a pride issue, you know, pushing American things and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but there's also understanding that sometimes when you're dealing with an American based manufacturer, particularly a good one. Um, they do have good inventories. They do have a lot of supplies and they're, they, they're easier to deal with in terms of, of, um, of getting replacement parts and having service. Um, but then again, you know, I, and, and, I, and I'm, I know I'm kind of going around in circles a little bit because there's so many different circumstances and so many different types of models out there. But like, let's take um, uh, a company that some people may or may not know about, uh, Myco. Myco is a German-based company. Uh, Myco has been selling dish machines in this country for about 12 or 15 years. Uh, when they first got to this market, they did not do well. Um, they really didn't know their way around how to do business in the United States. Uh, they're a European-based company, and they're, they're strong in Europe. And they really had a lot of problems coming in, into the States. But what they did is they learned from their mistakes, and they have a, 
they have a, a manufacturing um, facility about 20 minutes from our office uh, here in the Nashville area, and they stock over 3 million parts. And they are assembling a lot of things, so a lot of accessories and add-on items. The, the main piece is built in Germany, and there's a um, crates are coming over every, you know, a couple times a, uh, a month. And then they can add on stuff and, 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 you know, customize, you know, things right here in town. And then they ship them from here and they support them from here. And then they've developed their service network throughout the United States to take care of these units. So they've done a pretty good job about, even though they're an import, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're assembling them here in the United States and they're servicing from the United States and they have a huge inventory of, of things. And I, I think Rationale does the same thing and, and a few others. Uh, where some of some other companies, everything is being made, uh, you know, overseas. There is no final assembly here. There is no other parts you can put on there, you know, um, to, to, you know, for the accessories that a particular client might have. So you might end up in a situation where you might have to say, well, okay, I'm going to get you this piece of equipment, but it's going to be a six or eight or 10 week lead time because they're actually going to make it in Europe and ship it over here. And so um, that should give you some pause. Um, it would give me pause. Um, doesn't mean it's going to be a bad piece of equipment, but it's sort of like, wow, you know, um, that's a tough, I mean, and most of us, most people in the restaurant business, I mean, when they need something, they need it right now. Um, and so, um, so you gotta, you gotta, you know, be aware of, of what's there. And so, uh, and understand where stuff is being manufactured. So when you talk to your dealer, ask them, where is the stuff being built? Where's the inventory? Who is the suppliers? Who, I'm sorry, the, uh, who's the service company that, that takes care of it and make sure you understand you know, whatever you can so that not only can you manage that piece of equipment the day you get it, but five years from now and you know everything about it. Um, it it's just, you know, whether it's a thousand bucks or 50,000 bucks, it's money and you need to make sure um, you're buying the right thing. Now, there's other items like, um, you know, stainless steel tables. Um, you know, it's absolutely amazing how many types of stainless steel tables there are. And so just because someone says they have a stainless steel table, it doesn't mean it's the one you, you need. And if you see one for $300, you got to ask yourself, why is this $300? There's a reason why there's a $300 stainless steel table. And then there's the same one, the same five foot stainless steel table with somebody else that costs a thousand bucks. Well, the one that costs a thousand bucks has a much thicker, uh, stainless steel on top. It's got stainless steel legs, stainless steel under shelves, and it's built like a tank and it's going to last forever. You buy a $300, you know, five foot work table. It's got galvanized legs, galvanized bottoms. And in, in about three to five years, it's going to start rusting out. And so if, if you're okay with that, that you buy a five foot stainless steel, every uh, table, every five years, fine, buy the cheap one, know what you're going to get. But if you're buying and you want something that's going to last a life, literally a lifetime, then you, you buy the more expensive one. It's a pay me now, pay me later business. I mean, there is no deals. I mean, it's it's the it's the the life of the unit is the cost. So you really got to look at the life of the unit, not just what you're paying today. Which is a lesson I think most people could learn that 
if you haven't been around equipment, if you haven't purchased equipment or you haven't had equipment fail on you, you don't understand the importance of that lesson that you have to look at the total cost, not just the upfront cost. So I really appreciate you saying that because that is a lesson that I think most people need to learn that it's not about what you pay for it initially. It's about how long it's going to last, how much you're going to have to service it, it, how many, you know, how much parts are if you have to do replacement, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think some of the biggest problems are right now when it comes to design and consultants and, and things like that? One of the biggest problems in the healthcare world, as an example, is that a lot of hospital kitchens are designed and developed by architects. My point has always been, and the thing that I always make a point to say to people is like, ask your architect what culinary school he went to and where he's been cooking. Ask him what his food service experience is. Same thing with a food service consultant, because there are some guys out there who are really good engineers. They really understand the the mechanical, electrical, plumbing aspects of a piece of equipment that could tell you everything about it, which is, is fantastic. But can they cook an egg? You know, uh, do they understand, you know, how to deal with a busy Saturday night when you're doing 500 covers? Um, do they understand what goes on? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like when you're designing you got to make sure that that you're in your mind when you're when you're putting things on paper, you're standing there as the cook in that station and visualizing everything it takes to do that task, whatever it is. And you know, I, I was talking to someone about this just the other day. You know, take an an omelet station. You know, there's there's nothing better than just a great station where you can make fresh eggs all day and have omelets and have all these varieties. I mean, people love that. But there's also nothing more arduous and a bigger pain than having a station that's not set up to make eggs to order when the eggs are in a region, you know, 20 feet away or the ingredients are in a walk-in and you have to go in and grab ingredients to bring them in to, to make an omelet. It sounds silly, but it happens every day. Um, you know, one of my favorite things to do, and people at first go, that's really weird, but then they think about it and go, ah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's like a lot of times I'll stick can racks over in the pantry area or in the garmage area because wh who's using the canned product? The pantry. So why not store the cans in a rack right where the cooks are using it versus stick it in a storeroom in the back? where you have to go fishing for it. You know, um, it's these little things that, that make a long-term difference in, in, in the life of the kitchen, not only um, the physical structure, but also uh, the um, getting the most out of your labor and your manpower that are working in the space. Um, it, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in understanding um, the ergonomics of a kitchen and how you can cut those 11,000 steps, you know, down to 6,000 steps. Now, you're never going to eliminate them, but you certainly can reduce them by having a good design and a good layout. It's just one of those things. It's like you really have to understand the flow of food from, the, from how it gets from the back door all the way through the kitchen and then into the dining room 
and what and then onto the right in front of the guest. And so you need to look at every point that that food goes on and uh, how it gets there and what those steps are and make sure it's it's an easy, you know, uh, transition from one, you know, storage to preparation to finishing to serving to, to you know, actually going into the dining room. That whole process needs to be simple. Amen, brother. Well, I think we've definitely gained a few insights today and definitely learned a thing or two about what it is that we need to look for when it comes to design, when it comes to equipment, when it comes to searching out for someone to help us, a partner, because uh, really your equipment dealer needs to be a partner with you. So, Greg, if someone were to want to reach out to you and get in touch and maybe ask some questions, what do you think? What's the best way to do that? Well, I appreciate you uh, asking that. You know, um, the way I look at things, like um, I'm an open book. It's like you can – I'm on LinkedIn at Greg Gorgoni, and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I have my website, DRS, Food Service Design. And then I also have uh, an email address. It's drsdesign.solutions. Uh, but I'm easy to find either on LinkedIn or on our website. Um, and even just for an email, I mean, I don't mind answering a question. It's not like, uh, I'm going to try to sell you something. Just, you know, say, Hey, I heard this podcast. Um, I'm looking at this. What would you advise me to do? And I'll, I'll help you. I mean, um, you know, I tell people all the time, food service is, is not rocket science. It is, it is not state's secret. You know, it's like food service should be understood by everybody from the dishwasher up to the owner. Um, it, it's something to be known and shared about and talked about because uh, there's just a ton of information out there. And maybe, you know, your listeners can, you know, teach me something as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to know and a lot to learn all the time. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, you may get more emails or phone calls than you can handle, but hey, I think you're up for it. So uh, thanks again, Greg, for your time. You're a good man. And, uh, We'll chat with you soon. Thanks, Sean. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone who's interested in making food and money. And when you get a second, give us a review. It really helps us get the word out as well as letting us know how we're doing. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us, info at businesschef.org. This Business Chef podcast was brought to you by the Culinary Technology Fund. To find out more about how you can make a difference in the lives of culinarians as well as creating a more sustainable food service industry, email us, info at businesschef.org with Culinary Technology Fund in the subject line.